Hey, this is Walter Schreifels from Quicksand, and you're listening to The New Scene. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The New Scene. I am your host, Keith, and we're back with another brand new episode. And on the show, we've got returning guest and this week's co-host, Chris Hornbrook. Chris, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. Chris, you know, it's really wonderful to have you here. And you know what, Chris? I appreciate you because you are a true OG (laughs) of the show. You know, you were on like one of the first episodes when we had no idea what we were doing. And you know what? I appreciate that. No, no problem, man. I mean, I love and I love to come and chat with people about stuff. You know, I, uh, I haven't really done too many podcasts recently just because, I don't know, you got to get in the mood. And if you're not doing anything, like if you're not releasing a record or touring or working with somebody, then it's almost kind of pointless to do. Uh, you don't want to oversaturate your presence, I suppose. So this is kind of the first uh, podcast I've done in a hot minute. So it's cool, man. Thanks for thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm glad to have you here, Chris. And you know what, everybody, we've got a very, very exciting show here. We've got Chris here. And I've spoken to Dennis Lixen of Refused. That's right. And we cover it all. Refused, his excellent new band, Fake Names, their excellent new LP, Expendables, the history of Refused, their time on Victory Records, recording Shape of Punk to Come, International Noise Conspiracy. We cover everything. Refused, Chris. Refused. Hell yeah. Are you a fan? I am. Fan the Flames and Shape are really uh, are really killer records. And uh, yeah, they're pretty, they're pretty awesome. They're a pretty rad band. And that conversation is coming up shortly. But first, here's how you can support the new scene. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at New Scene Pod. Five-star reviews. Give us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And did you know that you can write a review on Apple Podcasts? If you write a nice review, I'll read it on the air. Shirts. We have shirts available at Death Wish Inc. Head over to the store, search the new scene. You'll see our fine selection of shirts. We've got a long sleeve. We've got short sleeve. We've got everything. Also, don't forget to support Iodine Recordings. The label just dropped a new Iodine on rotation playlist on Spotify. Find it, follow it. It includes Jerome's Dream, There Were Wires, Loma Prieta, Drowning Man, Majority Rule, a ton of great bands, a great playlist. Check it out. Stretch Armstrong have just been announced for the First in Flight Fest. That's October 5th in Greensboro, North Carolina. Head on over to First in Flight Fest on Instagram for more information. Jerome's Dream is playing the last ever Fluff Fest over in Europe to our European friends. If you can go, check it out. For more information, check out Fluff Fest on Instagram. For more information, head to the Iodine Instagram at Iodine Recordings or check out their website at iodinerecordings.com. Also, don't forget to support this month's sponsor, Death Wish Inc. That's right. Death Wish Inc. You know them, you love them, and if you don't, you should. Classic, classic label, 
They've been doing it for a long time, and they've been doing it very well. I mean, just take a look at the roster. American Nightmare, Cold Cave, Converge, Frail Body, The Hope Conspiracy, Thou, and of course, Greet Death. You've heard me talk about Greet Death a lot on the show, and their repress of New Hell is available now on Death Wish Inc. Make sure you get your hands on this. Easily one of the best records I've heard in the last five years. Top three, number one, it's up there. It's up there. That's up for pre-order. Make sure you grab that. Cult Leader has two represses up right now. A Patient Man and Lightless Walk. There's also merch to go along with it. And don't forget to pre-order Loma Prieta Last. The brand new record is out June 30th. The single Glare is out there right now for you to listen to. Pre-order the record. Pre-order the merch. It's out there and you want it. For more information, head to the Deathwish Instagram at Deathwish Inc. Or head over to the website at deathwishinc.com. Okay. Chris, so let's talk music recommendations. I'm interested in what you are listening to lately. Lay it on us. Oh, man. To be quite honest, and this is going to sound terrible, I've not been listening to music recently. And I know that sounds strange as being somebody that plays music and has been involved in music for a very long time. Obviously, this is no disrespect to anybody out there, but like, I just, I haven't been inspired by anything, you know? Like, I feel like what I'm hearing is cool or it's like a throwback or it's new and it doesn't appeal to me. But like, I'm just kind of searching for something that's going to, that's going to grab me and, and sort of pull me and and maybe like uh maybe I've put I've set the bar way too high but I do podcasts a lot I do a lot of uh audiobooks you know just sort of sort of things that'll help improve me as a person what podcasts are you listening to obviously you know this is probably no surprise but I I listen to Joe Rogan he has a multitude of interesting guests on that are experts in their field and you know sometimes he has somebody on and I'm like I not interested in this at all. And then he has other people on that. I'm like, wow, this is really interesting. Yeah. Say what you will about Joe Rogan, and many people do, but he does have an interesting mix of guests. Like I saw John Carmack was on there before, and I was yeah. like, wow, I bet that's a great interview. Well, I think the problem with 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 Rogan and people is people, like he's just a dude talking, and he's going to say some shit, and it's going to be completely wrong. Or he's going to say some shit, and he might be onto something. Or he's going to say something, and he'll be right. When he interviews musicians, I hate it. Because <laughs> it, it just it's it's usually pretty awful. Like I, he had a uh, Jason Everman, who I think his name is Jason Everman. He used to be in Soundgarden and Nirvana back in the day, and then like took like this turn and went to uh and went into the military, right? Just life and weird shit. And it was just the dude you could tell is not a guy that like talks and stuff like that. <laughs> and like Rogan, he's just saying he's like he's just kind of giving him. Give, telling Rogan the story and just Rogan isn't helping move it forward. He's just like, well, yeah, you know, I was in Nirvana and then, you know, Kurt didn't want to write. Then, then I was out and I, I quit and then I went and then, okay, what did I do next? Okay. Then I, I, I joined Soundgarden. And after that, you know, I, I got kicked out. And I got, it was just like, he was just talking like you'd just be talking to like a normal dude. But, you know, this is being said to like millions of people where you wanted, I wanted Joe to come in and like help, you know, he's a comedian. He knows, regardless if you like his style of of comedy it's an art of storytelling and he's just like just let this guy just on his own just to kind of i don't want to say flounder because it wasn't that bad but it was just like dead silent and he's like well i was living in new york and then 
this guy and then that guy. And then we got signed and we went up to Bearsville. And, and it's just like, oh, my God, like this could be really interesting if, if Joe kind of came in and helped it a little bit. Yeah, as the host, you need to manage it and say, wait, let, let's focus in on this. Wait, tell me more about that. That's the job of the host. Yeah, no, 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 for sure. And and, and also, too, I mean, he just may have just wanted to hear him wanting wanting to hear him talk, which is also another approach that I, I get. But yeah. it was it was a little rough because the dude definitely had a, an interesting, I don't know, life. It's like imagine being in Nirvana and then not being in Nirvana, but then being in Soundgarden and then not being in Soundgarden and then like going into the military. You know, <laughs> like that's a crazy story. The, there's another one that jumped in, in, my, in into my brain. He interviewed Josh Homme from Queens of the Stone Age. And Josh is like firing off dad jokes, just like just like the, the, the one line zingers sort of things. And they're just over Joe's head. And it's like, dude, you're a <laughs> professional comedian. How are you not getting these zingers? <laughs> and they were like, I guess he's been out of the game for a minute. I don't know. Someone, some of them are pretty on the nose, but like they're funny, right? They, you know, you get dad jokes and sometimes dad jokes are bad, but. You know, you could always kind of like chuckle at them a little bit. And they were just, I've, I think if you go, uh, if you go on YouTube and you look up, you know, some of the videos of Hami on there, that everybody's just kind of like ragging on Joe for not, uh, for not, not really getting it or understanding. But anyways, not to go down the, the Joe Rogan rabbit hole or a wormhole or whatever, but it's just, he's entertaining and he has people on and, and sometimes it's awesome and sometimes it's not. And it's just like, you know, let him, you know, some people have uh, issues with him in terms of politics or COVID or whatever. And like, that's what it is. You to take it with a grain of salt, man. It's just like another it's like your friend that might have some either wacky views on things or some on point views on things and like whatever. When's the last time you listened to music and got inspired by it? Has it been a long time? It's been a minute. I think the last time I felt really, really inspired when I was working on Mirror Cell with Greg, with the Greg Puchado yeah. record. Uh, you know, because you know, he was sending me songs and, you know, we're getting pumped and, you know, it started off as an EP and we kind of hammered all the all these songs and then he wanted to do a full length and had to go back and do the full length, you know, the, the additional songs to make the full length. And it's a cool collaborative process. You know, it's it's his thing. It's uh, obviously it's his thing because he has his name. You know, it's not a band. It's him. But, uh, you know, he he does a good chunk of the work in terms of writing the songs and arranging them and he'll send them to me. And then there's a collaborative process. Obviously, I might change some things up or do this or do that or, or whatever but he's very he likes to capitalize on excitement it doesn't take him like a like six months to write a record it'll take him like six weeks to put together four or five songs to get that like momentum going and then he wants to keep doing it he's like you know let's do drums and let's do drums here and it's a killer studio and yada 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 so i think that was the last time that i was like really inspired because it, it, it you know it's a project and it's a, it's a buddy of mine and somebody that I've been working with on and off for the past you know three four years or whatever and uh, it's been a while since I've done like a proper full length because sometimes I'll work with people and you're just fulfilling the live duties they have different ideas of what they want to do recording wise and sometimes they don't even use real, real drums they program it in whatever DAW they have or whatever program and and then they take it and they bring it to the live world and then they want to kind of turn it into like a live rock band and you you serve more of that purpose of knowing how to take fake drums or you know transition them into to real drums or bridge the two or layer the two it's it's a it's kind of a process of just having to rehearse a lot but it's been a minute it's it's been a minute since I had done like a like a full record because I had done I had done this, the the fuck content live stream and there were some additional songs that we had went and recorded that was cool. But that's, you know, like a stream with 
kind of like EP's worth of material. And then his first record, Child Soldier, I'd only played drums. I'd played drums on a bunch of material, but some of the material got cannibalized and like, you know, reworked or this or that. So it ended up that record, I was only on about five songs. Prior to that, I mean, I think the last record that I played on was Census Fails, uh, Pull the the Thorns from Your Heart. That was the last full-length record that I had worked on. And uh, yeah, that's that's where I I, I start to, you know, it's a very long-winded explanation. But that's usually how I start to feel inspired. It's like you go into the creative process with somebody or a a, a few people, and you kind of see where they're coming from. And I, I don't view myself as like a artist or writer or anything like that. I kind of view myself as a sort of a collaborator or like a creative builder, which, you know, I guess you could say is artistic, but I just don't look at it that way. You know what, Chris, I'm going to be honest. I don't listen to as much music as I used to, uh, but this show keeps me very connected. You know, COVID, I used to listen to a lot more music before COVID and COVID kind of leveled that because now I'm like way into YouTube. It sounds like you are too. Yes. And I got into Twitch two years ago, so I'm on Twitch all day. So that's a lot of my focus. But I do make time to listen to new music and I'm really digging Jerome's Dream. They've got three singles out for their upcoming record, The Gray In Between. I think that's going to end up being one of my favorite records of the year. So I've been digging on that lately. So listen, check back in with me and Chris in segment three, we're going to talk more to Chris. You know, Chris and Poison the Well back in the day went to Sweden and recorded at the same studio that refused, recorded Shape of Punk to come. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about what's going on with us. We'll cover everything. But right now, we are going to speak to Dennis Lixen of Refused and Fake Names. Enjoy. Right. We are here now with Dennis Lixen. Dennis, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Dennis, it's great to have you here. You know, you've done so much over the years, refused international noise conspiracy. You're in a great new band, Fake Names, that has a great new album, Expendables Out. And Dennis, we're going to cover all of that. But first, <laughs> I have to ask you a very important question. Yes. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. I, I was really, I had a, I was sick all of last week, but today I'm pretty fine. I'm, I'm good. I have the snivels, but nothing bad. So I'm, 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 I'm good. How are you? That's good. 
Oh, I'm doing great. It's a, it's a great week. I, I just joined a new band. I just spent a ton of money on new gear that's going to be shipping to my house. So it's always very exciting when that happens. I mean, you know, you're in a new band, you're doing new things, right? I have many new bands. <laughs> oh, really? Even more new bands? Yeah, I think I have... Uh... At the moment, I think I'm in, in five act, active bands, which is just bonkers. But, you know, I'm, I'm a restless soul and I like to work. So I just try to stay as busy as possible. <laughs> I love that. Five bands. You know, usually uh, in the past, Dennis, I would ask the next question I would have for the guest is, how do you find the energy to do all of that? You know, because uh, <laughs> we're we're pushing 50 now, but... I know the answer to that now, and it's just the incredible drive, right? Like, like you're mentioning, I have, uh, I just want to be working on stuff all the time. Are you the same way? Yeah, yeah, I'm an incredibly restless person, and um, it's one of those deals where I'm also I love music, so it's like whenever there's an opportunity or or a chance to play music, I'll jump on it, you know, and um, that that's just what it is. And I mean, not only because I mean to have five bands is pretty insane uh but i'm also i'm also doing my youtube channel i'm also a football coach for a fourth division team and uh yeah i'm I'm a very busy person (laughs) you're kidding me you coach football too yes i used to play for a long time uh and i i tore my acl a couple years back so no more football playing but then uh i i i I took a, a a coaching license and i've been coaching the team for the past uh five years yeah what kind of team is it it's just like a football team of uh dudes in they're between 21 and 40 i would say it's in the fourth division in in sweden so yeah that's amazing and what what kind of stuff do you do on your youtube channel i have a youtube channel called dennis deep cuts where i talk uh, about music basically it's just me nerding out about my record collection and i do lists of uh, different kinds and yeah i mean i am hoping that it will be more conversations and stuff like that but uh, i haven't really traveled that much for the past couple of months so there's been few opportunities to talk to my friends you sound like you're still pretty excited about music which is a good thing <laughs> after all of these years right because people can get burnt out or stuck in one era or just stop listening to it completely and checking out new things yeah yeah i mean it happens. I read somewhere there uh, that uh, most people, like casual, listener, casual listeners of music, uh, they stop discovering new music after the age of 27, which is kind of sad. And then a lot of people get stuck in the person that they were in, the, in their formative years. But uh, I just love music so much. And, and um, once again, I'm, I'm an incredibly curious person. And uh, one of my goals in life is to every day discover new music same here i typically don't listen to music unless i find something new that really grabs me and then i dive into it and i was on a long car trip the other day so i had time to really sit there and listen to new stuff for the first time in a long time and it was very exciting yeah i mean there's so much good music out there not not only I mean, there's tons of old music that's great that I haven't heard yet, but there's also tons of new music that's fantastic. And um, I think the people that are like, oh, there's no good punk anymore, or there's no good hardcore music anymore, or there's no good uh, whatever, post-punk, they're just lazy. They're just people that are not really that interested in music. Uh, but I just want to find out. I want to hear new music. I want I want things to excite me. And um, 
yeah, I spend uh, an incredible amount of time uh, with my record collection. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. What's the last new thing you heard that grabbed you? Um, the last new thing that I heard that really got me excited is uh, a, a Turkish psychedelic singer called Gay Soy Akiol. She uh, she has put out like three or four records, and I right before Christmas I heard her latest record, and it just blew me away. It's like uh, Turkish psychedelia kind of stuff, and it, she's just fabulous. That sounds awesome. Where in Sweden are you living these days? I still live outside of Umeå. I live, uh, I mean, really far up north. We still have, uh, I mean, I know you don't dabble in meters, but we have almost uh, one to two meters of snow outside, which would be uh, six, seven feet of snow. No. Yeah, yeah. You have that much snow outside right now? Yeah, yeah. There's no springtime here. It's horrible <laughs> oh my goodness <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty bad <laughs> we barely got any snow this year oh lucky lucky you. almost nothing yeah where are you about in uh new york city brooklyn oh, right. okay brooklyn ah, of course of course but uh yeah i have we have a lot of snow and uh i've been shoveling snow like it's going out of style this past winter it's insane Oh my goodness. Yeah. You know, all the years and all the touring you've done all over the world and everything, did you ever have any desire to move out of Sweden to the US or to any other country? Not really. No. I've been quite uh I've been quite content living here. And I think because of all the touring and because of all the traveling, uh, to come home to a place where I know everyone, it's a small town, it's always felt really nice. And of course, there's been times in life where I'm like, well, what am I doing living here? But then I look at, uh, you know, like trying to get an apartment in New York. I'm like, I can't afford that. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I can live uh, in my little house here in Sweden and then um, I can use the money that I, I, I save and travel. And then I go on tour and then I could go to New York and hang out for a couple of days. And that's kind of awesome. But yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes I wonder where life would have taken me if I had moved uh, when I was younger, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. And that, that's something I didn't even realize until talking to many guests like yourself, because I've lived in New York and city. Well, I've lived in cities for most of my life. And I'm like, oh, I wouldn't want to live outside the city. It's, it's uh, not hectic enough. Everything's not right outside my door. But if I'm like you, touring the world since I'm 20 years old or however young it was, you know, I'd want to go back somewhere quiet probably in two now. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the, the, the contrast between like, uh, I mean, I've been in all these big cities, I travel the world and you know, when you're touring, it's like rock club after rock club after rock club. And then to go home and I mean, the city I live still has a couple of venues where bands play it still has like a, a rich culture life, but it's a small town and, you know, you know everyone and you can be part of that reality and that world. And uh, it's just a nice contrast, I think. Um, I mean, obviously, sometimes I think about the fact that where would I be in life if I lived somewhere um, in the middle of things? Because, I mean, I lived in the uh, a peripheral sort of a part of the world my entire life. And it still managed to kind of build a career and, and build a life out of that. But I never been where the action if, is, if that makes sense. I never been, you know, someone that hung out with the journalist or the record label people. Or I, I've always been a kind of a recluse in that sense. 
I like that. I like that. That's how that's how I operate too. You know, well, I'm in the middle of a huge city, but I am quite reclusive as well. It's a it's a nice mix. <laughs> Everything's there if I want it. Yeah, you know, that is pretty incredible. Like you're all the way over there in Sweden, yet you've managed to accomplish so much. Like there are bands who move to New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, wherever, and sometimes nothing ever happens. Yeah, I mean, there are plenty of people especially if you grew up in the north of Sweden. I mean, people move to Stockholm or London or maybe Berlin or New York. And I never felt that need. And I think early on uh, when we started playing with Refused, I felt that um, it was like almost a, a, a matter of pride to to be able to say like, well, we live in Umeå and we, we're still this international touring band. We didn't have to move to Stockholm. We didn't have to move to London and New York. Uh, in a, a for for us to be this type of band, and I think that's that's kind of like uh, it was a as a big it was kind of you know a, a prideful thing for me to be able to say that. Yeah, let's talk about some of that time now. Refused comes together sometime in 1991. Yes, yes, around then. Yeah, late late 1991. Yeah, and talk about some of what inspired you and in the band at the time when you're putting this thing together. Uh, I, I I mean, so I was in a band called Step Forward. That was like a straight up fast uh, hardcore band. Like, uh, and I wanted to play hardcore. Step four broke up, and I met David, and we said, "Let's do this new hardcore band." And that was, uh, you know, the beginning of Refused. But then when we started playing, it was quite obvious that we were not going to be another like youth crew type of uh, hardcore band. That, but it was something very different. Uh, but I mean, in the early days, I mean, we just wanted to be, we just wanted to be youth of today, basically, <laughs> or, or Gorilla Biscuits, maybe more. <laughs> so, and we know the band took a bit of a more metallic sound moving into songs to fan the flames and, you know, getting signed with Victory Records. Were you just inspired by, I guess, everything else that was going on in hardcore at the time? A little bit, but I, I would say that um, uh, David, uh, who's always been kind of the main songwriter, refused he played in a technical death metal band when I met him. Like he was the drummer of a technical death metal band. And Chris that joined the band, um, well, he joined the band uh, before Everlasting. So he was like, he was in the band for Songs to Fan. He was a metal dude. Like he wasn't into punk or hardcore. Like he was into metal. So I think the common ground that we found when we were writing, it was more Slayer than Snapcase. Even though we loved Snapcase and we toured with them, I think our our the common ground that we felt was always more metal. Um, so I think that just it just kind of came naturally for both uh, Chris and David to write these songs that were like they had the intensity and, and the sort of power of hardcore, but like the the intricacy of, of metal riffs. And it wasn't inter- interestingly enough, it wasn't like sometimes when you're a punk and hardcore band and uh, you you become a better player, you start adding like uh, weird time signatures and weird riffs. And it wasn't like that for us. Like like uh, David and Chris were great players. So I think on the early refuse stuff, they actually played down uh, <laughs> their proficiency as players. So when when they kind of uh, when they kind of came into their own as songwriters, that metal thing was just very very natural for them. Was there any Snapcase influence? Because you know some of those riffs and new noise, they really remind me of Snapcase, and I really like that. I don't, I don't think I don't think intentionally. I mean, obviously. I'm pretty sure that they would have been inspired because we toured with them and we did, we did a, 
a European tour with them in 1995, and then we did a US tour with them in 1996. So, so possibly in that way, but I don't think we were intentionally uh, influenced by them. I think by the time we were doing a new noise and that record, I mean, you know, that that's the record where we got super pretentious. And, and I think more than anything, um, like Chris and Dave was into like Mahavishnu Orchestra and, and Charles Mingus and uh, that type of stuff more than uh, uh, hardcore, <laughs> which was also a big part of why we broke up, you know, because uh, I wanted to play in a hardcore band and they were they were into like uh, avant-garde art music. So that wasn't just uh, an aesthetic thing, you know, like I know the album was uh, inspired by Shape of Jazz to Come and there's some jazz sampling. So that's not just like an aesthetic thing, like those guys were heavy into jazz as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and still very much are heavily into jazz. I mean, David's one of those dudes that just like he can uh, he does mouth trumpet with all these jazz ferrets. And I mean, that was something that we're really into. And I mean, I was into when we did Shape of Punk, like. I was into soul music. Like I was into James Brown. I was into, I mean, can I scream? It's like a James Brown thing, you know? Uh, so we were definitely like on a trajectory away from hardcore, but we managed to have that intensity and that sort of uh, the riffage um, for that record. And and I'm sure if we would have continued after that record, it would have been horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about more of that, but first I want to ask, when and how did you get the attention of Victory? Um, I mean, I think the attention of Victory came early on because uh, I had a record label called Desperate Fight Records, and uh, we put out a band called The Donuts, which was... Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, and they got signed to Victory. So we were in touch with Victory. And then I think that uh, our first record, This Just Might Be the Truth, uh, came out on... Um, I think we bite in America and we bite had a, uh, they had like a, Euro, they did European victory for a while. So I think there was kind of like a, a kind of like seamless uh, transition from going from like, uh, we're on we bite, which is handling victory Europe and victory in the States were handling we bite the state. So it was like one of those transitions where it's like when that record came out, it was like, okay, we're on victory records now. And then they never paid us a cent ever. <laughs> of course <laughs> but that, that seems to be uh you know that seems to be par for the course <laughs> i was just talking about this yesterday it's it's sad that the same thing that happened to all the bands in you know the 70s and classic rock and all that it happened again to all the punk bands in the 90s and 2000s like i've heard countless stories friends bands you know maybe the label pays to have your record recorded but then you you know you get a box of CDs and that's it. No merch, no money, no uh, sales from records, and you're out on the road working for nothing. Yeah, but I mean that's kind of the reality of uh, what what capitalism <laughs> capitalism does to people. <laughs> I think, uh, and it is a shame because the whole setup with the DIY culture and punk culture was to be, I wouldn't say opposition, but definitely uh, you know something different than the major label rock and roll world and. Um, a label like Victory, uh, they definitely treated the bands like they were a major label. And they definitely, uh, I mean, they, they pulled a fast one on a lot of bands. And that's just what it is. And I mean, they they owed us tons of money that they never paid because we were in Sweden and they were in the States. And there wasn't a whole lot we can do about it. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah. Plus, when you're kids, it's not like you can afford to hire a lawyer and, you know, go to bat with Tony Victory and his attorneys. No, not at all. And I mean, also, partly a lot of it is also because we were kids. I think the record deal that we signed with WeBite was a really bad record deal. And that bad record deal had implications of us when we were on Victory. So it's like, but when you're like, 19, 18, 19, 20, you don't think about contracts. You just want someone to release your record and to be able to go on tour and stuff like that. So it wasn't, that wasn't really at all a part of the conversation until uh, we, re- we realized that we were never going to get paid. <laughs> right. Plus, you don't know, you don't know to ask like, hey, what are our residuals? Hey, aren't we supposed to get stuff to sell on tour? Hey, isn't this supposed to be covered? Like, you don't know to ask about any of that stuff when you're a kid. And even if you do, like, they'll probably just say no. And then it's like, oh, okay, well, I tried. But it, and it, but it was also interesting because so when we were touring um, with Refused in the 90s, and even Noise Conspiracy in the early 2000s, uh, labels did not want you to sell records on tour because they wanted to sell the records in record stores. So you get sound scans. Uh, I mean, uh. it was a long time before you were even allowed to bring records on tour to sell. Uh, Cause it was like, it was a part of that whole infrastructure where like, you know, you, you go on tour, you sell records in the store and then you get the numbers. And now, I mean, when you're now, when you're touring and I'm the one, uh, packing up the LPs every night. I, I know how many records we sell. I know what we're paying the label. I know what we can, you know, uh, what we can get after the tour. But back in those days, I mean, maybe you sold T-shirts, but maybe, you know. Do you think it's better now? Uh, I mean, uh, no. <laughs> 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 that short answer. You have to do more work now, right? <laughs> well, that that's fine. I don't mind the work, but I think, um, uh, you know, the short answer is no. The long answer is way more complicated than that because I think that being a touring indie musician has never been this hard, which is problematic because I think that um, in the years to come, you will see a lot of bands calling it quits and you will see a lot of bands that will stop touring because it is almost impossible to make a living playing music. I mean, in the in the 90s and early 2000s, you could actually sell records and you could get like uh, royalty checks once in a while where you're like, oh shit, we're actually selling records. I mean, Noise Conspiracy wasn't the biggest band, but we sold 60, 70,000 CDs. And that's, wow. I mean, just imagine that being doing that today. So I, I think aspects of the way we communicate today and the way we can sort of sell records on tour, some of that stuff is better. But a lot of that stuff is just more difficult and more, uh, I mean, it, it is way more complicated for bands to be a touring band these days than, it, than, it, than it's ever been, I, I would say. The odds are stacked against us, for sure. Yes, for sure. More than ever, in More, terms of yeah. expenses and fuel and yeah. labels. And, and now all this bullshit with venues. Venues want to take a cut of the door. They want to take a cut of merch, but the band doesn't get a cut of the bar. It's just, you know, it's, it's, it's capitalism. It's, it, is, it is bullshit. But uh, we can harp on about this all night. But I, I mean, at the end of the day, I am quite lucky to be able to play music sort of full-time have that be my job but i would say that the margins are shrinking every year and i mean the pandemic definitely did not help (laughs) not at all not at all (laughs) so when refused is playing initially 
I think you were outliers in that whole world because at the time, you know, there was a lot of hardcore purism and gatekeeping. You know, you, you had like the big three out there, Strife, Snapcase, Earth Crisis. And at least in my scene, there was a battle versus pure hardcore versus all the crossover stuff, which was not considered hardcore. That was considered metal. And it's this progressive music, yet a lot of the purest hardcore people are like pretty conservative, you know, in, in terms of how they approach things and their views. And Refused is in the middle of this, and you you don't look like you certainly don't look like other hardcore bands, <laughs> no. and you don't quite sound like it either. So, what was it like performing at that time? <laughs> it, it, it was a, it was a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, like would you roll up to a show and there would be guys in like cargo shorts and giant t shirts? Like, who the fuck are these guys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a lot of uh, uh, yeah. They told us what we look like. <laughs> oh no, I, I can imagine what words were used yes. too. Oh we, no, we're not going to repeat this uh, here. But, no, I mean it was interesting because early on, uh, I mean, both me and David were very like contrarian people. You know, we're we're the type of people like, oh, people really like our band, then we need to change because you know, <laughs> you know, the whole like, if if there's a club that would allow, allow me as a member, I would not go to that club <laughs> kind of attitude. So I mean, early on, we really shifted the way we look and we really shifted focus, and I mean, uh, we stopped caring. I mean, the early days, we very much wanted to be a hardcore band. We wanted very much wanted to be a part of that world and reality. But when once we found our own footing, we were like, well, let's just be refused. Let's not worry so much. And um, uh, for songs, I think we were still like hardcore enough, even though it was quite metal. But just, I mean, when we toured with Snapcase in 1996, we looked like crust punks, you know, and people like, what's up with these guys? Because we, we didn't look like, um, you know, cargo shorts and, and like we looked like a bunch of crust punks, basically. And then quickly after that, we shifted it we did a complete 180 and started wearing the suits and just like the the mod haircuts and uh yeah it was it was interesting because one when we were recording uh shape of punk i told david i'm like that the hardcore kids are not going to like this it's not going to be a popular record and he's like oh it's a great record what do you you know why should we care i'm like yeah you're kind of right but once we started touring that record um people didn't like it like it wasn't it wasn't like we went out and like, oh, we're, you know, like everyone's so excited about this record. We went out and toured and people were like, you are a bunch of pretentious, you know, fucking idiots. And we were like, <laughs> yeah, I guess. And then we broke up. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about that record, Shape of Punk, I've I've listened to you talk about it and and some others. And I've heard you say, you know, the band is focused on the music. And you were saying you don't even care about the music. You're more focused on the revolution, right? <laughs> yes. Was yeah. that what was going on? I mean, yes, to to a certain extent. I was very much, I was like fucking really, really deep into like situationist politics. And I mean, just a guy coming to the practice space saying shit like uh, music is a bourgeois construction. The only way we can use it. <laughs> is as a vehicle towards total revolution. And the other guys just look at me like, we spent 10 hours on this riff. What are you talking about? <laughs> uh, so it was definitely a clash of um, ideology versus, uh, you know, just being a band. 
Um, the song Summer Holidays versus Punk Routine is sort of about that, like how you you need to pick, like, what is this going to be? Is it just like we're going to be in a band and, and you know, uh, or is it going to be like a real thing? Um, and, and I struggle with that quite a lot um, where I was like, I wanted the band to have meaning and I wanted the band to be awesome. But I also was way more interested in the political aspect of the band than the musical aspect of the band. Right. Yeah. How old are you at that time? 24. What did you envision as like in your in your ideal state of mind? What did you envision happening in terms of this revolution? Well, I mean, I mean, we're always uh, talking about the, the complete and utter destruction of capitalism. And uh, so we replace that with a new way of living where people uh, actually do take care of each other and uh, we supply people's needs instead of uh, the capitalist, the capitalist corporation's needs. I would say that some of the, those ideas were a bit half cooked, which is fine. Cause that's the way it's supposed to be when you're young, you're supposed to have bit like, there's definitely stuff that I've said when I was young. I'm like, I'm kind of glad that Twitter wasn't around when I was doing interviews in the nineties. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, but at, at the same time, I think it was just like this idea of like, another world is possible. Another way of, of viewing the world is possible. And uh, if we can sort of convey that through music, then maybe other people can open their minds to uh, whatever that is, you know? And, and I think that, and I've said this many times before, if I would have had a clear idea on how to change the world, uh, I would not be doing an interview with you right now. I would be at the Nobel Peace Prize dinner and accepting some sort of award but here we are playing in punk bands 20 plus years later. <laughs> yeah. And you know, those award dinners are funded by somebody. Yeah. So that's also true. <laughs> we are on the cutting edge here, getting the real word out to the people. <laughs> At least we're trying. <laughs> Where and how did you develop your beliefs and your ideals? Because, you know, you were on the anti-capitalism tip like way before that became even more of a thing like it is now. Uh, I mean... It started with punk. It was like, uh, I always felt like an outsider. I always felt like someone that was um, alienation as an idea always felt very real to me because I was a complete weirdo from from the get-go. Um, and being this outsider, kind of, I looked at the world and I was like, there's something going on here. And then you discover punk and hardcore and um, the political baggage that comes with that was quite, uh, I mean, it was, it's quite obvious, you know? And then um, I just started hanging out with the local anarchists and then I started reading and then I started reading even more. And then I, I really did like a, a deep dive into politics because I also thought that that was one of the things like if we're going to be this band that that's talking about politics, that that's being because I mean, the language of punk rock has always been sort of about rebellion and resistance but a lot of people are just like, fuck society, you know? And then I was like, well, if we're going to be this band, I need to educate myself about what it is that I'm actually talking about. So I spent years just reading political philosophy, uh, studying sociology and studying theory. And uh, just so that I could be like, you know, this is what I believe in. And this is how I see the world. And this is my sort of a uh, and uh, how I analyze the world, basically. But I mean, it was all because of punk, obviously. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, you know, for years and years, I I hated the two party system here in America. It felt I remember talking to someone and being like, "Oh, it just seems like bullshit on both sides." And 
the person's like, well, you have to pick which bullshit you want. And I'm like, I don't like the sound of that. And I I really dislike Twitter. I just think it's a, a bad place mostly. But I have to credit Twitter with opening my eyes to a different world out there and a different way of thinking and just, you know, stripping away the facade of like Republican versus Democrat and realizing that they're, you know, of, I guess there maybe is some good people in mixed in there, but it's all mostly bad and it's all mostly structured to keep people down and keep the rich richer and the poor poor and all that stuff. And just, you know, being on Twitter and reading different thoughts outside of that Republican Democrat narrative opened my eyes. And I'm I'm glad that I was exposed to it because now I know that there's a different way like you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, before uh, before we got into I mean, before Twitter, you had to kind of figure that out yourself. Um, Yeah. But I think it's like one of those deals where like ideas are packaged in a way, especially in America, we have to say that it's packaged in a way that this is uh, this is the choices that you have. Uh, under the guise of like here's his freedom but you have only have these two choices and as you said they're pretty similar i, I mean of course there'd be uh there's of course a huge difference from your biden to donald trump but at the end of the day it's uh upholding and, and maintaining the same sort of power dynamics and same sort of structures and the same problems and i think that uh, especially for america i think one of the big problems with america is that it's founded on the idea or principle uh, that it's a utopian society. So whenever I talk politics with people from America, they're always like, well, it's some bad corporations, there's bad politicians. But from my point of view, it's like, it's, it's a system, systematic failure from the get-go, basically. And um, I think for a lot of people, it's hard to see and it's hard to sort of analyze what that means because that then everything is constructed and all the rules, all the laws, everything that we take for granted is someone created that to keep us in shackles. And it's not really a comforting thought for most people. That's super depressing and scary. Uh, but once you sort of unlock that idea, you're like, it's, it's really hard to see the world in a, in a different way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of propaganda that people aren't even realized that they're subject to. Like when I talk about being against capitalism, sometimes people will be like, oh, well, you have a phone. And I'm, <laughs> and that is really annoying because like that they, they're, just, they're just blinded by propaganda and don't even realize it. It's like, yeah, okay, purchasing a phone to use is one thing, but how about uh, a medicine that someone needs to stay alive? How about we don't charge $1,500 for it to put somebody in debt for the rest of their lives? Like, how about we charge a reasonable rate for it? That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, and and I completely agree. And it, it is interesting from from a European perspective to see uh, the the political discourse of America because I mean we get that a lot too. Where it's like people are like I'm a capitalist, and I'm like, oh really? Are you like in charge of a Fortune 500 company? Do you make money off of the labor of other people? And they're like, no, I like cars and watches. I'm like, that's <laughs> that's not really the same thing. And I think. Um, there's definitely uh, uh, educational flaws where people don't really know what capitalism is. They definitely don't know what socialism is uh, as an idea. Uh, so there's all these like uh, chinks in the armor, like, people like, well, this is what I think it is. And then you're like, oh, that's not at all what it is. And and also it is interesting to see that a lot of people that have nothing to benefit from uh, the structures that we have today, uh, they're cheerleaders of this oppression. And they're, they're like, you know, 
uh, I am a capitalist. I think that Donald Trump is great. And I'm like, everything he believes in is fucking you over. And they're like, no, 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 it's great. I'm like, so sometimes it is a bit frustrating to be someone that, that's been talking about politics for the last like 30 years. And it's, it's definitely not getting better. <laughs> that's what hurts me the most is like, yes, like you're saying, lower middle class, poor people will champion these candidates who want them dead, basically. They will put <laughs> yeah, legislature yeah, yeah. into practice that keeps them down and will kill them. But they're like, no, this is our guy. Like nobody, nobody can see what's going on. And I've had a lot of arguments about it, but I don't want to do that anymore because it's alienated me a bit from cer certain people. Uh, so listen, I try to circumvent the system by getting along with everybody, as long as they're not like some crazy racist or extremist, because if you're into that, I don't want anything to do with you. Yeah. But if you're just a regular working family person, like maybe I can find some common ground with you and get along with you. And I, and I think, I mean, honestly, that that's a nice sentiment because I think that's a little bit of, a, that's a little bit the key to understanding other people's situations. Uh, it's really easy to be like, um, you're the enemy. But at the end of the day, like, like if we're talking in those terms, like the enemy, that's the 1%. The enemy are the people that are turning your neighbor against you while he is or she is like just a normal working class person trying to look out for their family. And I think, as you said, if you try to find a common ground and you can, you can sort of uh, agree on certain basic needs, then I think that's, that's a good thing to do. Because I one of the problems with the, the Twitter and this social media world is the polarization of extremes, which doesn't really, I mean, the only, the only ones that are, that are benefiting from this, uh, this extremist sort of polarization is the people that want to keep us down. Yes. Yeah, exactly. That's why all these distractions are out there. And uh, listen, if I live my life alienating and hating everybody who doesn't believe exactly what I do, I'm going to spend most of my time alone because I encounter, I don't know, one person every three months who believes exactly what I do, you know? So <laughs> well, you I got to find a middle ground. You should move to Sweden. <laughs> I think I might. How's the rent there? Is it cheaper than $2,000 a month? Oh yeah, 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 it is. I mean, maybe not, maybe if you move to Stockholm, it's quite expensive, but yeah, if you move to Sweden and then you'll find more people that uh, believes in what we call the common good. You know, I, I tore my ACL um, a couple years back. And How did I, that happen? I was playing football, of course, as an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I had a pretty extensive knee surgery two years ago. And then uh, you go to like a physiotherapist to, to, you know, I mean, I need to rebuild my leg, basically. Um, you know how much it was? It cost me, the surgery cost me 20 bucks. And then uh, each time I met the physiotherapist was 20 bucks, but only until you reach 120 bucks, then everything after that is for free. That's the kind of world I like to live in. <laughs> yeah. Like you won't go into debt for the rest of your life for this torn ACL. And there are people in this country who want to give it to people. And they're like, no, if we give them free medical care, they'll go to the doctor when they don't even need it. It's like, no one would actually do that. Well, Maybe like if they were looking for pills or something, but you know, listen. But uh, but I mean that that's like um, that's the old like um, American myth of freedom. Like, but what, we <laughs> need to choose, and like, there's no choice if you're a person. There isn't. No, if you're a person, you break your arm, and you go in debt 
because of that, that's not a choice. That's just stupidity. <laughs> so we know the shape of Punk to Come came out. We know the initial reception was not great as you and the band predicted, right? Well, I mean, I think David thought it was going to be great. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I, I predicted it not going so great. But then, I mean, uh, David David had the last laugh because uh, it, it became great. <laughs> People were not ready for it, right? I don't think they were. And I, and I also think that, uh, as you uh, attested to, I mean, the hardcore scene was quite, uh, it can be quite conservative. And, and there's a lot of gatekeepers and there's a lot of people who are like, we don't want to open our minds. Um, and I think that's what it was. Like, like we came out and we like, we're this type of band. And, and a lot of like the people that we were playing shows to, they're like, we don't like this. But then once we broke up and, and people, they're not just your, your typical hardcore kids heard the record. It, it really changed everything. Um, this is quite interesting. Yeah, because when you see the new noise video, first of all, that video still looks better than mostly everything that's come out since. And this is back in like 1999. And second of all, like some of you guys have the haircut like six years before that even became a thing again. So, <laughs> you know, you were you were ahead of it a bit. We were ahead of the curve. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you hear, like, when did you see the tide start to turn? Because I got into hardcore in like 98 and by 2002, 2003, The Shape of Punk to Come was like a record you were indoctrinated with. It was like, this is a great record. You will listen to it. When did you start to see the tide turn on that record? I mean, a bit earlier because uh, we broke up in 1998. And then uh, I saw Noise Conspiracy and we started touring. So I would say like 1999 is when I started realizing that like, holy shit, like people can't stop talking about this record. Like, where, where were you a year ago? Because um, I remember going out to tour with Noise Conspiracy and people like, I love Refused. I'm like, wait, what's happening now? Uh, <laughs> so maybe like a year after we broke up, not maybe not even a year after we broke up, you, you could feel like there was something happening. Um, it's quite interesting. I, it's interesting to see your band becoming a big band and you not being involved in it. Were you sad about that at all? Or were you focused on noise conspiracy and what they were doing at a, at the time? What was your thoughts about it? I, I was focused on noise conspiracy. And I mean, noise conspiracy, uh, we're doing pretty well. I mean, we, uh, we toured and we put out records and we got signed to American Recordings. And uh, I think in general, like what we were doing as a band was way more successful than Refused ever was uh, while we were a band. So I think I was just focused on that. And, and I, more than anything, I think that um, it was a bit of a nuisance that I had to deal with this Refused nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because like, Noise Conspiracy is, is different. It's, more ro it's way more rocking, you know? I guess it has more, like, more mainstream appeal. W were you more into that? Had you left behind most of the punk and hardcore and all that stuff at the time? Yeah, at that time, yeah. I was kind of, I mean, I think it all, all sort of, uh, it, it was all connected to the fact that that last refused record didn't really do that well. And we were going apart. And I was like, when we toured in 1996 with Snapcase in the States, our first US tour, it was a bit of a culture shock for us. Like we came over and we're like, we're this like political hardcore band. We love hardcore, but we're super political. And then uh, 
that whole world and that whole reality wasn't political and they weren't really open mind because we we even though we were super hardcore like we loved all types of music like we just loved music and uh that world didn't so when we came home from that tour i was like oh this is kind of lame basically and then you know I, i discovered like uh northern soul music i got super into like the whole mod thing and garage rock and 60s rock so when we started noise conspiracy we had a really clear idea of what we wanted it to be in contrast to refuse because i i mean i that last record shape is is it's it's a bit of a record you know so like how do you follow that up like with a new band and my my whole uh my whole idea was like i need to take like two steps backwards to be able to take a step forward that makes sense. And that's what you'd been doing the whole time anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in Noise Conspiracy, uh, you recorded Armed Love. That was the first record you did with Rick Rubin, correct? Yes, it was. And I've heard you say that when you recorded that, that's when, for the first time, like you really learned how to sing because Rick really worked you, right? Yeah, he worked me hard. I mean, uh, he, was, he was relentless. Uh, and it was the first time, well... I mean, I kind of knew how to sing, but I think there was, it was the first time where someone said, don't do that. That doesn't sound good. I'm like, what? I'm like, I'm a blues man. And he's like, you're no blues man. Just sing, <laughs> you know? And so I think he taught me a lot about like, uh, maybe like the limitations of my voice, but also the strength of my voice. So I think it, it was for sure the first time where I was really like, uh, you know, I, I felt comfortable with my vocals and, and you could tell like after arm love um there there's way more confidence in my singing and I'm, I'm i'm using my voice in a very different way do you think he was right like uh the the guidance and direction he, he gave you do you think he was correct and that it helped you yes yes uh, i think that even though uh both those records we did with rick didn't really go anywhere as far as uh <laughs> commercial success um it was such a learning process, like the way he uh, listened to music and just to be in those studios with those engineers. Uh, it was such a learning process. And, and I really soaked that up. I'm like, this is amazing, like to, to, to see and to hear what he was thinking about music and he, how he saw music. It was, it was great. I learned so much from that. Yeah, you can really hear it on the record too, Armed Love. Like the production is spot on and your voice does sound stronger than ever. So I'm surprised to hear you say it didn't do that well. Was it like not punk enough for the punk crowd and not mainstream enough for the mainstream crowd? I mean, like, what do you think happened? I, uh, well, if we have five more hours, I can, <laughs> I can tell you. Uh, in, in, uh, when we signed to American Recordings, I mean, being, being a, a hardcore kid of the 90s, there's all these horror stories about like what happens when you sign a major label. Um, yeah. And we're like, it's not going to be us. And it was definitely just us. <laughs> everything, <laughs> everything wrong with major labels just fell on our heads. Um, and it was a mess. Like we, we got signed to American recordings through Island Def Jam. Leroy Cohen was like the big boss man. And he, he came to see North conspiracy live. And he, he was like, this is going to be the next big thing. These guys are great. Uh, and then he left. So we recorded armed love and we're touring armed love and we're playing uh, the last show of that tour was at Coachella. And, uh, the record's supposed to come out in like two weeks and Rick shows up at Coachella and he says, um, I'm moving my entire operation from Island Def Jam. And we're like, what does that mean? He's like, I don't know. 
So our record got stuck in limbo for 10 months. And then we finally came out of Warner. And by the time it came out of Warner, we already toured the record for almost a year. And um, all the journalists were just like, no, we, we got we got copies of this record like a year ago to review. Like, I'm not going to write about it. So it just, it just came out and nothing happened. And then uh, when we did the next record, we started recording the record and Rick's like, well, not, we're not on Warner anymore. And now we're moving to Atlantic and uh, Atlantic saw the numbers of armed love. So they don't want to release the record. And uh, we spent like, honestly, like $200,000 on recording a record and then Vagrant put it out and they gave us like a thousand bucks to shoot a video. And that was it. <laughs> that was the end of the band. <laughs> Did you shoot the video? Yeah, we shot the video. It's, it's all right. <laughs> What'd you do with a thousand bucks? Well, someone filmed us for like a day and that was the video. It was, yeah. But, but it, it was like, it was like one of those realities where you're like, so this is what happens when you get caught up in the major label machinery. And I mean, I have friends that have been on major labels for years and years, and it's been really good for them. And then I have friends that have been really fucked over. But Noise Conspiracy was definitely one of those bands that we on a very, very upward trajectory. Uh, at the tail end of touring for New Morning Changing Weather, I mean, we played in New York. and We, we, we pulled like almost 2,000 people by ourselves in New York. And we we're like, this is fantastic. And then... Uh, you know, it all fizzled out. So what happens after that? Do more conversations start about a refused reunion or what, what happens? Uh, I mean, what, once Noise Conspiracy broke up, uh, I started Invasion. And mm -hmm. that was kind of like my main focus. And I wasn't really, me and David had a hardcore band together called AC4. So we were hanging out, but we weren't really, we talked about refused a little bit, but it was always like, yeah, that's not going to happen. And then um, it happened. <laughs> <laughs> How does it happen? Do you? I mean, do you get? When do you get together with the other guys? How do those conversations start? Well, as I said, me and David had a hardcore band called AC4, so we were hanging out. And uh, David lived in Umeo, and then Chris moved back to Umeo, and and Chris and David started hanging out and writing music together. And then Magnus moved back to Umeo, and he started playing music with them, and then they were hanging out with John. So for the first time since like 1998, everyone's living in the same city. Everyone's hanging out. And then um, we got like the third offer from Coachella because they are, they, they gave us the offer a couple of times. It's always been like, no, nah, it's not going to happen. And then uh, we got the offer from Coachella. David emailed me and he said, I'm don't, don't talk to the other guys. Just let them marinate upon it, you know, on it uh, for a second. And then, uh, I was like, yeah, it's not going to happen, you know? And then uh, I think like almost two months went by and then David just calls me one day. He's like, we're doing it. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, we're doing it. I'm like, we're not going <laughs> to meet up and hang out. He's like, no, well, let's do it. And then I guess, uh, I mean, both Chris and John was like, you know, I got nothing planned for next year. The money's good. Like, let's see what happens. And uh, that was it. How was your relationship with the rest of the band, did we have to get together and have a summit or anything? Because, you know, I know there was tension at the initial end of the band. I don't know if you had been in contact with everyone. Like, what was the vibe? Uh, the interesting thing, like, David was really friendly with everybody. So David kind of kept in touch and hung out with everyone. So he was kind of the, the, the key to the whole situation. I had a very, very like, uh, if I met Chris or John, I'm like, hey, what's up? All right, cool. I'll see you later. You know, that type of relationship. We didn't really hang out. So 
the first thing that we did, uh, we went to John's house and we sat down and we talked about how are we going to do this? Are we doing interviews? Like what's the setup going to be like? And we had a talk, like we had a proper series, uh, long talk and, and, um, kind of clear the air a little bit. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, it, it, there were no real bad vibes, but it was like, we weren't really friends at that point. So uh, we definitely had some talking to do. And then once we had the talk, we're like, okay, let's, let's practice. Wouldn't it have been funny if after all that time you were, you like started talking about the revolution again and, and <laughs> how we need to get that going. And everyone's like, Oh no, here we go. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I do think that, uh, in the in the years in between since we broke up and we got back together, the other guy's appreciation for my revolutionary tendencies uh, has definitely uh, increased, and my appreciation for them, uh, for their riffage and for their ambition, has definitely increased. I think, I think at that in 2011 when we got back together, I I think it was like we definitely met on a on a much more. Uh, you know, common ground than, than, uh, 14 years before. <laughs> yeah. Cause when you're kids, you don't know how to talk to each other. You're out of control with your thoughts and figuring out who you are and needing to let everybody know where you stand and maybe not being able to hear people as well as you should. And, you know, I'm talking from my own perspective here, <laughs> but when, uh, all this time goes by, you're more of an adult, you're more situated, and uh, I think you're better equipped to deal with each other in a band structure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's that's the reality of most bands, and that's the reality of why most bands break up, because uh, we're unable to talk to each other, you know, unable to communicate. And uh, that became a very important part of, uh, of us getting back together. Like, we needed to communicate what was going on and what we wanted and what we needed. So when Refuse gets back together, I mean, we play Coachella. That's incredible. Uh, there was a lot of incredible gigs that were played. Is is there like a certain satisfaction where you're like, finally, goddammit, everybody understands this record. They understand us. We are appreciated. Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, for me, I've always been someone that's been like, I wouldn't say struggling. That's a, uh, that's harsh, but I've always been someone that I want to prove myself when I get on stage, I want to be able to say like, I deserve this space and, you know, I want to be here and I want to win you over. Um, so for years and years and years, that, that's been kind of my go-to mentality. I'm going to win you over. And in 2012, we got up on stage, the intro started and we won people over. <laughs> and it, it, was, <laughs> it, was, um, it was awesome, but it was also not, uh, you know, the way it's supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i no. it's i like i like these types of stories i like to i like to imagine that everybody has their day you know uh yeah yeah and, and i mean it was great i mean that whole year was pretty fantastic i st we we still call it the victory lap <laughs> that was yeah. like that's like uh, and i mean it was fantastic and the excitement about our band was just uh it was above and beyond anything I ever uh, experienced before. Uh, so it was, it was a very, very cool year to be, uh, to be part of. Refused toured with one of my favorite bands of all time, Philadelphia's own Ink and Dagger back in the day. Do you remember this? <laughs> yes, I did. Any, any memories from that tour? Any, anything you can recall? Yeah. So Don DeVore that played in Ink and Dagger called me up one day 
This is 1990, early 1998, or maybe even 1997. And he said, I heard you're looking for a bass player. And I'm like, yeah, we don't have a bass player. He's like, I got what it takes. I'm like, really? So Don DeVore flew over to Sweden and tried out for Refused. Wow. And he didn't have what it took. <laughs> <laughs> what was it? I don't know. He was, he was a bit too free and loose in his playing. <laughs> I see. Uh, but I really liked him. And I really liked Inkin Daggers. I think it was a little bit of like, he's, he stayed at my house for like a month, uh, for a week. And he was practicing with the other guys. And then the other guys were like, all right, we need to talk about this. I'm like, okay, how is he doing? And they're like, no, it's not great. You need to, <laughs> he needs to fly home. Uh, so he flew home and then I said, well, we should tour with Inkin Daggers. That'd be great. And uh, it was awesome. They were a lot of fun and they were quite weird. And um yeah, I really liked them. It was a, it was a really fun, fun but kind of grueling tour. There's a really nice um, YouTube clip of uh, Refuse where we're playing uh, somewhere in Ireland, and there's like six people in the crowd uh, that are passed out at the table, and we're just blasting through a really great set. And uh, <laughs> they they were part of that tour, and it, it was just uh, it, it was cool. They were really cool guys. Wow, an international tour with Ink and Dagger. That must have been some good times. Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we have a new band now, and this is very exciting. Fake Names. Yep. There's some heavy hitters in this band. We have yourself, Dennis. We've got Brian from Minor Threat and Bad Religion. We've got Michael from Embrace. We've got Matt from Enon. We've got Johnny from Boys Against Girls. Talk about this band. When does it come together? How does it come together? How do you get involved? Uh, I will correct you. Matt's not in the band anymore. We got a drummer called uh, Brendan that was in a band called Fugazi on drums instead. Oh, I, I've heard, <laughs> I've heard of that band. I've heard good things. I've heard good things about them too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Brendan uh, Kent is playing drums on the last record, and he's now an official member of the band. Um, wow. Yeah. Wow. That's kind of how I felt recording. I was like. I just looked over, I'm like, that's Brendan Canty from Fugazi and Rites of Spring. So I'm like, what's going on here? Why am I in this room? And uh, <laughs> it's kind of, <laughs> that's kind of my uh, position on the fake names in general. Why am I in this room? Uh, Brian Baker moved to Jersey and uh, Brian Baker's favorite guitar player is Michael from Embrace and SOA and Faith. And they never played in a band together. So Brian, I think Brian hit up Michael and was like, we should, we should start a band together. Like, we should start playing. And then uh, Johnny Temple lived up the street from Michael's. They were like, let's get Johnny involved. And I think they tried out a couple of other singers. I, th I mean, you know, they're a bit, uh, <clears throat> they don't want to tell me too much, but I think they asked a couple of other singers. And then um, I met Johnny when Invasion played a show with Girls Against Boys. And he was super nice and we really hit it off. And then Refused played Riot Fest. And uh, Johnny was there and he came up and he's like, hey, what's up? And then he saw Refused play. And then I think I, he just texted the other guy saying like, maybe we should ask Dennis to be the singer of our new band. And then um, I was hanging out backstage at Riot Fest and Brian Baker walks up to me. And I'm like, you know, I'm, I, I didn't really know Brian, but he's one of those dudes where like you gave him the band, band nod when you saw him because it's Brian from... Minor Threat and Dagnasty and Badger's Religion. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and he walks up and he's like, hey, what's up? And I'm like, yeah, you know, and he's like, I have this new project with Michael 
Hampton. And obviously I knew who that was. And I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. Do you want to sing? And I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was, there was no follow-up question. I was just like, yes. Um, and that was it. And then, then a couple of weeks went by and I'm like, what's this sort of weird dream that I was going to be in a band with, with Brian Baker and Michael Hampton. I'm like, that's weird. And then they sent me some demos. I did vocals on, on a couple of songs and then a couple of weeks went by and they're like, let's, let's fly you over to New York and let's hang out and practice. And that was it. How do you record the demos? Do you have a setup at home? Do you go to a studio? What do you do? I have a setup at home. I, I have a, like a demo studio because uh, that's how I work. I mean, nowadays when uh, people are scattered across the globe, that's kind of how you operate. Like you send demos back and forth. Just uh, earlier today, I sent, uh, uh, I did vocals on a couple of refuse demos that I sent to the other guys. So, I mean, that's kind of how you operate. And then as, as you approach, as, as you get closer to recording a record, the demos get more and more kind of fine tuned. So once you get into the studio, you're you're pretty much like set on everything you want to do, you know. So then they fly you over to America. Do they pay for it? Yeah, the first time, yeah. Uh they they paid for it and they they I came over and hung out for a couple of days and it was great. When you fly over there, like what what do you do? Do you stay with one of the guys? Do you get a hotel? What how, what do you do? I'm uh, usually I stay at uh, Johnny Temple's house. He's got a little uh, nice house in Brooklyn, and uh, he's got a guest room that I can use whenever I want. So I mean, I haven't been there. Just like I'm coming to New York for a couple of days. Can I stay at your house? And he's like, Yeah, cool. So it's it's a bit of a luxury thing to have. And then uh, I mean. One time I was over there and we practiced and I stayed at Brian's house for a couple of days. So it, it's good. Is it weird for you to stay with people at all? You know, because like when I stay at someone's house, it's like, I don't know, I feel weird. Like I, I, I can't do my routine. I'm kind of subject to their house and everything that's going on. How do you feel about it? No, it's fine. I uh, The first <laughs> the first like seven years of being on tour, we just stayed at people's houses every night. Uh, but so that you're used to that, but that was awkward because you didn't know these people. Uh, and I mean, with someone like staying at, staying at Johnny's house, like he'll just leave me the key and he like, I'm off to work. I'll see you tonight. I'm like, cool. And I'll, I can do sort of what I want. So I don't mind it. I think it's nice. So when do we record expendables? When does that happen? Uh, it's like a year ago. Uh, I flew out to, we were sending demos back and forth th- during the pandemic and then uh, about a year ago, I flew out to Asprey Park and we did the record there. And it was just fantastic. We practiced for like two days at Brian's place and then uh, just straight into the studio and just, you know, did it. And like I was there for two weeks. And it was great. That's amazing. So I guess uh, from all the demoing back and forth, everybody is just ready to play once we get together, right? Yeah, that's, a, I mean, that's the ambition. Uh, sometimes you have to figure out some of the guitar noodling and some of the stuff. But I mean, most of the time, I mean, these guys are players. <laughs> they they know what they're doing. So usually it's pretty, you know, like it's pretty set and we know what we're doing. So it, it's, it's usually fairly, it's fairly easy, I would say. And, and the recording process was, uh, it was fun. It was just like uh, no drama, no, uh, no bad vibes, just, just fun. I'm not used to that. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, give it time. It's still a new band. That is true. Well, the difficult, <laughs> the, the even more difficult third record. You know. <laughs> <laughs> 
only two days practicing. Well, it's a, it's a room full of pros. So, you know, you put in the work and then uh, you just got to perfect it for going into the studio, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's kind of, I mean, I think sadly that's reality for a lot of bands nowadays that a lot of the music, uh, the, the creative aspect of music happens on the computer and then uh, you get together for a day or two to actually, uh, you know, hammer it out in, in the room. Um, I miss writing in the practice space. I mean, uh, Noise Conspiracy, we wrote everything in the practice space. We we jammed everything. Like we, we were one of those bands. We just played and played and played until we had an idea. And um, Invasion was that way because we all lived in the same city. We all lived like, you know, like a 10 minute walk from the practice space. So we used to practice all the time, but then people move and then uh, you can't practice as much. Now it's like, okay, we're going on tour uh, on Thursday. Can we meet up on Tuesday and practice for a couple of hours? That's usually, <laughs> that's usually how it is nowadays. That seems to be the way it is for most bands now because everybody's older, everybody lives far away, but we're, because we're older, we have more money so we can like fly and meet up and practice before the gig and then go do whatever it is. Yeah, I think I think that's the reality for most people. Uh as I said, I miss I miss being a band in the practice space and I, I think that might also be why I have a, a bunch of new bands cuz uh during the pandemic we started a new punk band, uh, me and Sarah that plays in Invasion and she was in Noise Conspiracy and The Donuts. Uh, we started a new punk band just because we were like, what are we going to do? There's nothing to do. Like, let's just go to the practice space and start playing punk again, you know? Oh, I love that. So that must have got you through the pandemic, right? Yeah, I wrote a shit ton of uh, punk songs. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I need something to do. Like, uh, uh, So yeah, uh, starting new bands and then playing disc golf were the things that got through me, uh, got me through the pandemic. <laughs> What was the vibe over there? Like, uh, I mean, in New York City, it was nuts. You couldn't go outside at all for a while. And then there was all these fights about masks. And if you weren't wearing a mask outside, you would be crucified. And uh, I don't know, it was like a year and a half of craziness. How long did lockdown last over there? We never had a uh, real lockdown. It was for some, something in our constitution said that you can't force people to stay inside. So we had, um, it was more like... Uh, this is how we should approach this problem. So uh, a lot of stuff just stayed open. Uh, a lot of people just went to work. A lot of people work from home. And then people were wearing masks when you went to the grocery store and stuff like that. But we never had a lockdown. So it's kind of a weird situation when you saw the rest of the world completely locked down and isolated. We could actually sort of meet up with friends once in a while, and you could go out and do stuff out in the in nature. <laughs> so it was a very different scene here than than the rest of the world. I would say that's amazing to think about. Like that life just continued, but people wore masks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and people wore masks. People were good with distancing. Obviously, all cultural events, like all shows, the movies, everything like that, got shut down. But just going to the, the grocery store, even going to the restaurant, you could still do that stuff. So it's like uh, that part of reality wasn't that uh, hampered as it was, especially in the States, you know? What's the status of uh, international noise conspiracy? Did that officially come to an end? Yeah, I think it, we, 2009, we were supposed to tour China and then that tour got canceled and they were like, well, let's just do nothing. <laughs> um, on the other hand, I'm I'm one I'm one of those people that's like I would never say never. Uh, 
if there's an opportunity or a door opens and there's excitement, I wouldn't mind playing a show or two with Noise Conspiracy. But it's not really uh, top of my agenda with five other bands. <laughs> did you take a breather after Noise Conspiracy? Because didn't you start International Noise Conspiracy like almost the day after Refused ended? Yeah. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I had, <laughs> I had, um, I had the people in mind way before noise, uh, before Refused ended. I think what happened was I was just at home moping for a week after Refused broke up. And then I was like, ah, I'll call everyone now. And then we start practicing. Uh, but when Noise Conspiracy broke up, I already had, um, Invasion was already sort of happening. So that just easily I morphed into that. And then we started that AC4 band, uh, me and David. So it wasn't, I'd never taken a breather ever. <laughs> okay. That was going to be my question. Like after Noise Conspiracy, did you, was there a break? Were you sad of not touring? But it sounds like you never stopped. No, I never stopped. I never stopped. I mean, I just kept going. And uh, I mean, you know, as I said, we started Invasion and we started playing immediately and we put out records immediately. Uh, I think the first Invasion record is from 2010. And I think the last Noise Conspiracy record is from 2008, maybe. Uh, so I, yeah, I just kept kept playing, kept touring, and I mean, sometimes sometimes you're lucky and you can go on a high profile tour with Refused, and sometimes uh, you go on a DIY tour with Invasion. I mean, we did a European tour in December where I drove the van, I was the tour manager, and I did the merch, and it was great. <laughs> oh, you actually did the merch? Yeah, yeah. So you're you're truly living a socialist, anti-capitalist <laughs> lifestyle because I imagine you sequestered backstage somewhere, but you're driving a van, you're selling merch. We have access to you. I like this. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, uh, I mean, it, almost even with the refuse shows, I'm usually out in the crowd hanging about watching support bands and stuff like that. But yeah, with Invasion, I mean, um, we do the merch ourselves. I I tour manage myself. We, we drive the van ourselves. I do all the production. Um, very DIY, but you know, on a, on a, I mean, it's not, we don't, we don't have to stay at people's houses anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yeah, that is nice. So what do you do when you're not touring? And we know that you play some football. Are you, are, are you healed from the injury? Is that, are you still in the healing process? Uh, I am healed, but, uh, uh, I don't really play that much anymore because I don't want to hurt myself again. I played disc golf. I don't know if you know what disc golf is. Oh yeah, no, yeah. I know I know what it is, but I don't know what it is. Is it like uh, no? I'm thinking of frisbee golf. Disc that, golf is like a heavier no, no, thing. That no, no, disc golf is exactly frisbee golf, but uh. it was it wasn't allowed to be called frisbee golf because frisbee is a brand, and uh, oh, right. but it is it's exactly frisbee golf. Like you throw a disc into a basket. I do that when I when I need to sort of a. Uh, unwind or think about something that's not creative work I, I i play disc golf how often do you play mm, well since we have winter now i don't play that much but uh summertime almost every day oh excellent yeah, yeah i love it it's like you can go outside for an hour with your friends and throw some discs and then it'll clear your head right out i mean especially during the pandemic it was one of those things where I didn't know what to do with life. And then a friend of mine said, let's go play disc golf. I'm like, no, that's not going to happen. And then we went and I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to do this now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Getting outside, even if it's just for five minutes, really, really does help you clear the mind. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it, it was like, I live out on the countryside. So 
the access to these type of parks and courses are everywhere. Uh, so if I'm at home working, I can literally be like, I need to take a break. I'll drive to the nearest disc golf course. It takes me five minutes and I'll, I'll, I'll go around. That's an hour and then I can come home and continue working. So I try to do that uh, quite a lot. And I'm actually uh, going to compete this summer. We'll see what happens. Oh, really? Yeah. Have you competed before or would this be the first time? No, I competed a couple of times last summer. I was okay. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's always my goal is to be okay. Like yeah. I know I'm not going to be number one probably at anything and that's fine. Or I know I probably won't be the best. I just don't want to be the worst and that's good enough. Exactly. That's my ambition when, when I compete. Yeah. I don't want to be the worst. Like, like somewhere in the middle, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. I used to do a lot of competitive online gaming, you know, oh, like, yeah, yeah. I, I I rarely would win, but if I was top ten or just not one hundred and fifty fifth place, I would I would be happy. Yeah, yeah, of course, that's great. That's great. <laughs> so, Dennis, let's talk about what we've got coming up. I mean, there's many bands that you're in. Uh, I'm sure there's tours and shows coming up. Let's let's give the people uh, the information where they can find you, where they can see you. Yeah. Uh, so the most imminent thing coming up is the Fake Names tour. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't know when this is going to be online or on the air, but I mean, this tour starts in mid April. So it's pretty, it's coming up fast. And then, um, Invasion released an EP in December, but it's coming out on vinyl. Actually, next week, that's coming out on vinyl. And then my new punk band, Venice Casino, we have a record coming out in May. Oh, yeah. And then, uh, I'm doing some touring with Invasion after the summer. And then I'm hoping that I will record some music in the fall. Amazing. I'm looking forward to that. And you said you're recording. I, now, I heard you say in the beginning, you're sending some refused demos back and forth. And it sounds like maybe some new music. Hmm? I, well, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> it's an <laughs> in, incredibly slow-moving process, but it is a process. Uh, I mean, we put out the record in the fall of two, 2019. And... Uh, the pandemic just killed us. Like, like we were we oh. just started touring and we felt we had some momentum and we felt like, okay, this is actually going to be really cool and really good. And the record's going to, you know, take flight. And then um, the pandemic came and it just really knocked the wind out of our sails. And uh, we took a long break. And then maybe a year ago, a little bit more than a year ago, we started sending demos back and forth. But then everybody's been super busy, so it's a slow-moving process, but there is a process. So we'll see what happens. Wow. That, man, the pandemic, it just, uh, it just really messed up a lot of things for a lot of people, right? Yes, it did. Yes, it did. Were you on tour when it all happened? Did you, get, did you have to end a tour early? What happened? No. Well, we were on tour when it all happened. We were touring the States when it all happened. Um, we played in Los Angeles two days before the U.S. shut down. Oh. I, I landed in Sweden. When I landed in Sweden, all the flights uh, out of the States got canceled and uh, that the country just shut down. And when I landed in Sweden, Sweden also kind of shut down. That's that's like the beginning of uh, So, I mean, we, we were on tour until like the wheels came off. Like if, we, if our tour would have been like three days longer, uh, I'm not sure we would have made it home. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Dennis, I read on Wikipedia that you were once voted uh, sexiest man in Sweden for Elle magazine. Is that true? <laughs> yes, it's true. 
I mean, that must feel pretty good, right? Yeah, it's a long time ago, but yeah, it was it was it was interesting. They uh, they called me up and they said, uh, "We we we elect we chose you to be the man of Sweden." I'm like, "That's what? What's, <laughs> what's a man of Sweden?" And then I went down to Stockholm and I did the interview. And halfway into the interview, she said, "Well, you're the sexiest man of Sweden." I'm like, "What?" And she's like, "We didn't want to tell you because we were afraid that you would turn it turn it down." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you want to turn it down after she told you that? No, it's it's it was quite amusing. <laughs> I see I now I don't know about you Dennis. I would be bringing that up every chance I could even though it was a while ago. Like I'd have the magazine with me and I'd be like, "Oh, I dropped this. Oh, look at that. I was once the sexiest man in Sweden." Oh, yeah, well, yeah. You know. well, you know. That yeah, I I don't I don't take advantage of it as, as much as I should. I think it's a it's a good it's a good notch on your belt, though, right? It is. It's not bad. It's it's definitely a bragging material for sure. And you do have good fashion. I I do appreciate that. You know, I spend quite a bit on clothing myself when I can. Like I I liked to do what you and Refuse did. I liked to look different within the hardcore scene. You know, like back then, I don't know, I'd wear like a collared button up shirt to a show and I was like, wow, I'm really different. And now I'll wear like some really expensive black stuff to a show. And I'll, well, I'm not doing that just to be different. Now I'm, I'm doing that because it's what I like. But yeah, I, yeah. I appreciate I appreciate the fashion sense as well. Yeah, I try. I just I always I want to look good. You know, I just want to yeah. look good. <laughs> it's a it's a it's good to look good yeah. and it feels good, too. Yeah, yeah. Builds your confidence. If you feel like uh you got a nice pair of shoes on, a nice pair of pants, and a nice jacket. I mean, it definitely helps your confidence when you roam roam around the streets of uh, Umeå <laughs> or New York. A hundred percent. Well, Dennis, this has been great. You know, I've been listening to you in, in various bands over the years, and uh, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. No worries. Thank you for having me, and uh, hopefully I'll see you in New York in a couple of weeks. And there you have it, Dennis Lixen. I mean, wow, great, great conversation. I just love how candid Dennis was about everything. You know, he talks about Shape of Punk to Come and that whole era. And just, that was one thing that I was surprised about, Chris, what he was talking about, like, he just had the revolution in mind, you know, like that, that was the focus of him and the, the you know the band would come to him and bring him a riff and or the, they'd be working on this music and he'd be like no you know the music is bourgeoisie it's it's just a means to get the message out there to the people which uh was surprising i didn't know it like i know that he talks about capitalism and all that stuff and that was another great part of the conversation you know just hearing the origins of his beliefs and and all of that because like my beliefs are more in line with his now whereas they weren't when i was younger but you know, just talking about the band would bring him music and he'd be like, no, like this doesn't matter. The the revolution matters. <laughs> but yeah, you know, Refused has done a lot of great things. It was great to hear about them coming back and the victory lap, as Dennis put it. And uh, of course, Fake Names. Great new band, great new record. There's a lot to check out, everybody. So make sure you do it. So thank you, Dennis, so much for coming on the show. That was amazing. Now, Chris, 
you uh, and poison the well, for you come before you. You went out to Umeo to record at the same studio that refused recorded at, yes? Sort of. We did, but it was a different version. Yeah, we did tell some of this story last time you were on. I think Derek maybe was inspired by Refused and Shape of Punk to come and had the idea to go out to Sweden to record, yes? Sort of. So the way it worked was I had gotten really heavily into that record. It's probably around... Nine, it was probably around the time that it came out, or not too long after, because I remember I saw them at the uh, up in Vero Beach right before they broke up after that first run, and I remember playing it for Derek, and Derek just like wasn't into it at all. But I guess at some point he sort of reapproached it and just like absolutely fell in love with the record. And when you know we signed to Atlantic and we were doing the whole thing, we started having the conversation of like who's going to produce this, who's going to engineer this, and you know. The, the names of certain names at the time came up, like Mark Trombino, who had done, uh, like, I think he did a lot of the Jimmy Eat World records. I'm not, I'm not quite sure. Uh, I think he did Clarity and I think he did Bleed American. Anyways, he came up. A few others came up that I can't really remember off the top of my head, but then those dudes came up. But we didn't like know their names because, you know, they were just kind of, they were in Sweden. They had done To, to Fan the Flames. And they were pretty inv- heavily involved with the Umeo hardcore. And I was a little... That wasn't kind of my world, but I knew Derek knew some of it. Jeffrey knew some of it. And Ryan knew some of it. So we just started having the conversation. Like, well, maybe these guys are the, are the guys to do it because the production on the record was really rad. Like, it wasn't super huge. It was kind of raw. Pretty interesting. You know, drums sounded killer and guitar and bass. And everything just sounded, you know, good. So... Our manager at the time just kind of reached out to them and those dudes, uh, Pele Hendrickson and Esco Lovstrom, they, you know, we sent them some of the material. They had listened to it of older stuff. Like we sent them opposite and we sent them tear. And then they came out and hung out with us and we kind of started demoing stuff and, and just sort of, they, they kind of sold us on what they were about. And it seemed to, how do I say this? It seemed to be that we were kind of looking for, I don't know someone to kind of guide us along. Like that's obviously what a producer is, but like even myself of like working with producers, you know, American producers or English producers, since I've kind of gone off my own and sort of playing with people, their style and how everybody else does stuff is, is very, very different. Uh, those guys were very frank and very, you know, honest about things. If, if things could be better, uh, you know, with songwriting or things could be better with drumming or bass playing or vocals, you know, they were, they didn't hold back. They weren't. They weren't shitty, but they definitely helped whip us into shape as uh, as musicians. And um, yeah, so they came out and did that. And eventually, we sort of the thing with uh, the thing with you come before you is it was split up into two sessions. So all the basic tracking, drums, bass, guitars, were done out at Sound City out here in uh, California, up in Van Nuys before. You know, before all the hoopla, before Dave came in and bought the board and moved it to 606 and all that sort of stuff, when it was still sort of kind of what it was. We did all the basic tracks there. And then we flew to Sweden. We did overdubs, we did vocals, and then we mixed and mastered out there. But we were out there for like, I don't know, probably two or three weeks doing that. And um, yeah, that was kind of the story with You Come Before You. Versions, everything was done out there. And that could be like, we could talk a little bit more about that, you know, if, moving on but yeah you come before you was split up into two and it was done out there and it was also in regards to refused there was an old tone technique and there was a new tone technique the old tone technique was on the other side of town which they had done shape at i mean 
you know, essentially same boards, same dudes, same, you know, the stuff that all studios have. They just, as their business grew, they moved into this sort of larger, bigger facility. And, um, and yeah, so that's kind of what I meant when you're before like, oh, you recorded there and blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, sort of. They recorded at the old place and we recorded it at the, the, the new facility. Yeah, so not the exact same place, but same people, same skill set. Yeah, basically. And it's just also it's the same spot where like Colta Luna have done all the records because Magnus, Magnus Lindbergh, uh, they're sort of engineers, sometimes drummer. Like he kind of plays like a, he, I know he does, he plays drums live sometimes, but he's their engineer as well. He kind of plays like more of a jumping around role from what I remember. He was sort of, um, he worked there with Pele and with Eskel. So that's how we kind of met him and we met all of the Cult of Luna guys. So they've done like, I think they did Salvation there. Uh, they did, uh, what was it? A long, fuck, I'm totally blinking. <sighs> fuck, what's the one after that? I think it's all, something all along the highway. It was like my favorite record forever. They did that, some of it there, but they did did it. They also did another chunk of it out at this place called The Barn where we recorded a bunch of stuff for versions. I'm the saying. Long Road North. No, no, no. I'm looking up that. their albums right now. The, oh, one. let's see. That's 20. Oh, uh, The Raging River. No, no, no. Before that. it's It was right after Salvation. So versions mm-hmm. recorded all out in Sweden. Yeah. Now, uh, was Poison the Well on Ferret at that time? We were in between. So we were, we had started doing that record and we had went through the whole process of, uh, of, of, putting demos together and that whole thing while we were still on Atlantic. Because I was going to say, did Farrah pick up the bill to fly you guys out to Sweden? They must have been doing pretty good. Yeah, I think also too towards the end for them, I think they had additional funding from outside sources, but don't don't quote me on that. But um, no, we started the process of of doing like a chunk of that material was done while we were still on Atlantic with, you know, Atlantic money. And then we had done... Ah. That was broken up into three sessions, but we had only gone to Sweden twice. So we went to Sweden, recorded a, a bunch of material, hung out for a little bit, wrote some more material, and recorded it, but recorded it in a not at Tone Technique, like at a basically a big concrete room because we were trying to get a, a particular, you know, a particular sound. And then we went back, got off Atlantic, wrote more material, and then went out there. And that's when this, the, the last time that we had went out there was when we had uh, signed a ferret, and yeah, they had picked the, picked up the bill and so on and so forth. So, so yeah, yeah, the entire record was done out there. It was cool. It was really, it was a really interesting, unique experience to uh, to do that. Yeah, I mean that's pretty amazing. Going all the way out to Sweden to record not one but two records. Yeah, no, that's you know like not many people get to record abroad. And uh, even though technically I've only recorded once abroad because we tracked all the drums for versions out there. Uh, yeah, I was but still... some of the work was done in Sweden, so we're going to count it. That's it. Totally. No, 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 no. That's, that's, totally, <laughs> <laughs> that's totally acceptable. But uh, to have participated in a record, in two records made in Sweden, is super, it's super cool, man. It's super cool. Did you ever uh, cross paths with Refused or International Noise Conspiracy? Like touring or anything? We actually toured with International Noise Conspiracy uh, Take Action Tour 2002, 2003, somewhere around there. Yeah. We, oh, yeah. Yeah. We, we toured with them. We didn't, we, we didn't really bro down with them at all. And just nothing personal. It just may have been age differences and, and taste and sort of whatever. But yeah, they were, uh, they were on a, a portion of that tour. Was this day forward on that too? 
Uh, they may have been. They may have been on a, on, a, on a chunk of it. They did one of those take action tours. I was just wondering if it was the same one you were on. I, I'm totally drawing a blank because it's such a long time ago, but I would... It's am- like 20 years ago now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so long Who ago. Who can remember that shit? <laughs> yeah, but but I think I, I think that they... I, I'm pretty sure I remember they played some shows because we had done two take actions. There was one where we weren't headlining and then there was one where we were headlining. And I think we had done them uh, like one year and then the next year. And then obviously I, I think they did maybe one or two after that and then... You know, I don't think it's been a I don't think it's been a thing for a minute. You know, Chris, the first time you were on the show, that was pretty soon after this show started, mm-hmm. and right when the pandemic kicked off. Yeah, I remember that. And uh, this was back when my co-host Tommy was still on the show. Yep. And I re- we remember talking to you, and you were like, "Yeah, it, it's looking like live music isn't going to happen again until." February of the next year, yeah, at a minimum, yeah, and at, at the you know this so it's March 2020, it's March 2020, and you're talking February 2021, yeah. And I remember after we got off the air with you, you know, me and Tommy were like February 2021, no way, no way, it's going to take that long. Oh yeah, and not only did it take that long, <laughs> but it took like even longer. So and that that was like a talking point on the show for a long time because you were right. Yeah, man. I mean. I had heard that was kind of when Live Nation was predicting it. And obviously, they hold, you know, a lot of sway in the touring world. Maybe not necessarily in hardcore and punk or anything like that, but in the broader sense. So uh, that's kind of what I was hearing. And, you know, also to me living in, uh, in, in California, you know, the pandemic lasted for a long fucking time. It was like March of 2020 to like February, March of 2022, pretty solidly, where like, I think for the first year, I, I mean, I I met my girlfriend throughout the uh, the beginning of the you know, beginning of the pandemic, which was great because I spent a ton of time with her, and you know, you get to know, like, you get to know somebody pretty quickly when like you can't go out, you can't do anything. You literally can go to her place, or she can come to your place, or my girlfriend cooks, she she'd cook dinner. You're like pretty limited in what you can do. It was it it, it was just kind of wild to think that like, dude, for a year, all I did was hang out with her hang out at home, go to the grocery store, go to my studio and, and play drums. And that was it. I didn't, I didn't really do much past that. Like didn't really hang, nobody was hanging out. Like <laughs> nothing was, nothing was, it was so bizarre. It was the first time in my entire life that like shit just stopped. It was wild. It's so weird. My perception of time is still all messed up from that whole thing. Oh dude, same, same. Yeah. That It's a whole blur. Like when I think back upon that time, I think of me hanging out in my kitchen eating food or like hanging out in my kitchen and drinking coffee or hanging out in my room on my computer or like on my phone, like hanging out with my girlfriend. (laughs) She's coming over here. I'm going over to her place. Like it's all a blur. Like it's all just kind of like jumbled. Like two years is just jumbled into this. Like it feels like a few days. It's so bizarre how the, the human mind works. It really is. I mean, I guess not a well, you know what? A lot I was about to say a lot has not changed for me, but it has. I was in a relationship at the time. Uh that relationship is not a thing anymore. Yeah. And uh this this podcast became weekly. So, uh, you know, it was a lot of sitting at home and walking on the podcast, which yeah. I still do a lot of. So, no, it hasn't changed in that sense. Yeah, no, that's that's killer. I mean, it, it sucks when relationships end, so I'm sorry about that, but the fact that you're doing the they're doing the podcast weekly and it's become a more of a serious thing for you. That's that's awesome. The show has survived and thrived. And you know what? That's enough. 
Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So Chris, I want to know how you are doing personally. Now, we know that you've been playing some gigs. We know that you've been working on some music. We know all that. But what about you personally, Chris? What's going on with you? You know, man, not... I'd like to say there's a ton going on. I I do have things like, you know, non-music work-related things or like family stuff or like relationship stuff. But for the most part, things are pretty calm and pretty consistent. You know, like I don't really, in all honesty, I don't really have a lot to complain about. Um, Life is life is good. I wish I was doing certain things that I'm not doing right now. You know, like what? Uh, I guess things that um things that I can't necessarily talk about yet. But mm. but um, I wish I was doing those things. But yes, I'm not. And and maybe down the road those things will will pan out and they'll kind of go the you know go the direction that I hope that they'll go. But for the most part, man, things are things are pretty things are pretty killer, man. Like music's awesome. A little slow, but awesome. And uh, yeah, a lot of cool stuff down the road. I mean, m- as much as I talk about how I don't listen to music anymore, music is a massive part of my life. You know, I spend a lot. I still spend a lot of time playing drums and doing pad work and that sort of stuff. Doing side session work. You know, you get hit up, and you know, I could go record some stuff at my studio. Which just throwing it out there, you know, I do remote session stuff. So if anybody has songs or a song, you know, hit me up. Same thing with touring. You know, I get hit up. I've been. I haven't really. Like the last tour, proper tour that I've done uh, was like summer of 2019 when I was out with uh, with ELO. Uh, Danny Harrison was opening up. It was like a full arena tour. And then everything shut down and things got weird. And now it's like, you know, Poison Wall Flat and play Furnace Fest or I'll play a show with Greg or, or you know, these like little one-off things. And it's not... Um, the full the full touring thing for me it's weird right now with inflation as well i don't know if you see it but like it went from bands coming back and touring really hard for like what 6 8 10 months and then inflation caught up and gas and then the whole ukrainian russian war and then it's like it seems now people are still doing stuff but they're not hitting shit the way they used to it's like very like strategic now yeah yeah i'm in a band now for the first time in a while, and we will be doing a little bit of touring, and uh, I have already spent a lot of money, and will be spending more. Yeah. It's wild, man. That's just the way it goes. Oh, dude, inflation is... Uh, it is... I, I've never experienced this in my lifetime with such a huge jump in such a short amount of time. That's, that's like, super noticeable. And um, Yeah. I mean, like, people have been getting screwed over for a long time with the cost of things, and, you know, the rich getting richer, and the poor getting poorer, and all that. But I feel like it's, like completely egregious now like something has to change yeah i agree man i i've i've seen a few things on the news where they talk about this is not so much about actual inflation this is just about straight greed yes exactly you know the way the model like i'm definitely not anti-capitalist but i do think that cap capitalism has some very 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 negative destructive sides and i think that we're seeing we're seeing them play out you know, it's just like every year you have these companies have to make more money and it's like there's no cap on that. And like I think the government dumping all the money, dumping, you know, all the stimulus into it, you know, inflated a lot of these companies. So they're like, well, we got to we have record breaking profits the past, you know, two, three years. They have to keep going. And it's like kind of doesn't work like that. It was kind of an artificial boost. You know, they, you just print money and put it into the system and then people can't go anywhere. So they're spending stuff on, you know, buying Apple products or Amazon or whatever, Uber Eats or whatever, you know, 
then yeah, they're just dumping it back into into con- consuming stuff. So the bottom is going to fall out at some point. It's just not sustainable. It's, right. it's just it's not that sort of thing. Just isn't sustainable. Like you can't sustain that. And I don't know where this goes because I know obviously the Fed keeps raising interest rates. I don't. Is it stopping things? Is it slowing things down? I, I don't know. I mean, gas is still super expensive in California. You know, Ukrainian war broke out. I didn't realize we got war from, or I'm sorry, I didn't realize we got oil from Russia. But overnight, that <laughs> shit jumped up like a dollar out of nowhere. <laughs> it went from like three twenty five to like four four twenty five in like a few weeks, and it's like, is that just greed, or are we actually like, is there a, is there a reason why that's happening? Because it's like all this shit's opaque. It's greed. Yeah, it's all this shit's opaque. Like you don't know how these things work. I don't really trust the news so much. You know, it's like no, not at all. Yeah. And it's it's so it's hard it's really hard to like put your finger on it and there's so much disinformation and misinformation out there you're just kind of like well fuck I'm just gonna have to kind of live my life and I can't trust anything so it's just like I just gotta make the best decisions with the limited information I have in front of me you know I want to talk too about uh, Poison the Wells performance at Furnace Fest last year yeah yeah I was there and uh, you know. I think you had one of, if not the biggest crowds that whole weekend. Did you see that? I did. It was wild, man. I mean, uh, we were told that, which is awesome, you know, <laughs> like yeah. to, to be told that. And we had a great set and people were stoked and we played well. And, you know, we don't play all that much. So it's like when you play that one time, especially at a festival where there's like five to 10,000 people in front of you, you know, you want to you wanna home run it and you want to knock it out. You definitely want to try to knock that shit out of the park and... Yeah, Furnace was great, man. It was a great vibe. You know, we flew out there a few days earlier. We did rehearsals out in in Birmingham. Like we didn't do them because we usually rehearse in California because I live here and Ryan lives here. So, you know, everybody just flies out here and this has kind of become more of a home base. Like none of us really live in Florida. So, but yeah, we we all got an air, a really nice Airbnb together. We hung out, we rehearsed together, you know, and a few, like the first day, I think Jeff and Brad and a few of the dudes went to, um, went to Friends Fest and hung out. So it was just a really good vibe, good camaraderie. Got to see a bunch of people I haven't seen in a long time. Like it was just awesome, man. It was just a really great, super great experience, man. Like one of my in recent times of thinking about things, like one of my favorite festival experiences I've had. Yeah, same here. You know, especially uh the first year because uh when did I go there? Twenty twenty one because you know, I hadn't been there in 20 years. So yeah. it was such a trip to be back. And, you know, I was there hanging out with Vadim and mm-hmm. that's always a good time. Always a good time. Oh, yeah. And just seeing a bunch of people I hadn't seen in a long time. And then doing it again last year was cool. And, you know, just great bands. Got to see you guys. Got to see Sunny Day Real Estate, mm-hmm. who I hadn't seen since 2009. And I didn't remember the show because I was blackout drunk and <laughs> I got knocked out after the show because I was I was being obnoxious. So, you know, and it, like, look, I'm surprised more people weren't watching Sunday Day Real Estate. I don't know if a lot of people left after you guys or if they were watching another band. I don't know. But look, good for me because I got to see like an intimate Sunday Day Real Estate show at a fest outside. That's cool. But like, I, I was just surprised like that it, there wasn't more people. Yeah, I, I don't know, man. Like, uh, I feel like our stage was a little bit more heavy inclined as the evening went on, right? Like. Yeah. I yeah. think Cursive played before us, which obviously they're not heavy. They're a little bit noisier rock. But yeah. I, I think between us, I think Ghost Inside, and I think there was maybe one or two other heavy bands. It kind of like leans a little that way. 
I think that's it. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I, honestly, I don't. I don't know. I'm not the biggest Sunny Day real estate fan. Like they're cool. I just, I just never really got into them. But I, I know Jeff and Ryan like them a lot. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that's kind of wild that they. Uh, it wasn't. There wasn't as big of a crowd. I, I don't know if. Uh, I think it was just a fest, you know, and there there wasn't like as many people at the fest last year as there was in 2021 like in 2021 everybody went you could barely even get in to see the bands anywhere i heard yeah yeah i heard we were really yeah. bummed because we wanted to do it but there was some uh, sort of emergency stuff that came up with one of our guys in terms of health that right prevented us from doing it but uh i think vadim had went and he had came back and hung out with him and he had told me you know he's like you guys should have went you know bands were selling merch and the shit was wild and blah 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 and we're like ah fuck because we had done psycho vegas which should have been an awesome festival and like we had a great time and blah 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 but like it was still in that weird stage of covid where there was a bunch of eu bands that were supposed to come over that just they weren't allowed to come over so they had to like rearrange the lineup i think they got like mastodon and they got a bunch of other bands to sort of fill the void and we were playing um in Las Vegas, it was at uh, Mandalay Bay. We were playing House of Blues, and uh, it was okay, but it wasn't it wasn't wild. You know, we expected it to be more to be a bit crazier. And I think, yeah, I mean, COVID and all that sort of stuff. It's like festivals. Back to what we're talking about with Sunny Day. It's like uh, it's a crapshoot. Sometimes you could think you could look at the flyer and cool Las Vegas or cool Birmingham or wherever, and you, you think it's going to be. It looks like on paper it's going to be amazing. But just for whatever reason, it just doesn't doesn't pan out. Exactly. Yeah. And especially in 2021, things were still very unsure in terms of COVID and crowds and concerts and all that stuff. Yeah. And that's also too, it's like people up until that point had the freedom to go out and like go to shows. Do you want to go to a giant con- concert at an arena or you want to go to a small basement punk show or hardcore show? We've experienced that in our entire life, and out of nowhere, this weird thing happens, and then everything shuts down, and you can't do the things that you've been doing your entire life, which is such a, it's such a shock to the system. So it's like once things are going, and it's like Furnace Fest happens, or Psycho Vegas happens, or whatever happens, people are just fucking pumped. They want to go. They want to see their friends. They want to see bands that they love because it's like the way sort of the the media sold the whole COVID thing was like you thought it was the end of the fucking world. And yeah. you, you didn't know what was going to happen. Obviously, people died, and that is fucking awful. But it, yes. it wasn't the end of the world, you know? So, going and people being able to go and have a good time and see their friends, man, like, you know, that's, uh, I think that's back to what you're talking about with 2021. I think that's what that was. I think people were just amped. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know I was. So, Chris. What have you got coming up? Is there anything we can plug? Or is there any shows or bands or projects or anything uh, that you want to mention here in the end? There are a few things that I cannot talk about. But when I when they do come mm. up, I think people will be really stoked. And it's not what people think it's going to be. It's um, It'll be cool. It's going to be somewhat unexpected when it does. And... Uh, you know, it's it's uh, in, tr- in true Poison the Well fashion, it is not the obvious. So whatever people are thinking it is, it's not that. So That's exciting. It's also ambiguous. I know. I've been quite ambiguous. You're like, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm cool. You know, th- you know things are good. You know, <laughs> the blah, 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 blah. Like nothing super specific. You're like, what's going on? What music do you like? Well, you know, I don't like music anymore. <laughs> no, listen, like, you know, I'm in a period right now where... Everything is very stable. You know, all right, if Chris, if I talked to you in 2021, my life was a wreck 
for various reasons, and oh, I don't want to go into it all here. That that sucked, but you know what? Things are pretty boring right now, and I couldn't be happier. Dude. I cherish those times. Same, dude, same. Like, stability, like, is really nice. It's everything. It's, dude, it's everything to have, like... To have a killer place to live and to be in a really great relationship that's healthy and like solid and you know, you're not dealing with maybe antics that you would have dealt with in your twenties or maybe even your early thirties, <laughs> that sort of thing. Exactly. You know, to be an adult and be and to handle your your business and yeah, it, it kind of lends itself to comfort and it lends itself to things to being a little boring. And um yeah, man. Like I'm, I'm okay with some. I, I will say it. Sometimes things do feel slightly too boring, but like I don't want to like, I don't want to stir the pot by like, I don't know, whatever I would do in the past to stir that pot. Every obviously everybody does that in their own way, and everybody gets varied results. I'm quite content with the the relationship, and I'm quite content with home and the direction that things are moving. Obviously, you know, we all have our personal goals and I think everybody should have their personal goals, whether it's, you know, it's finance or it's relationship or it's your own personal mental health stuff. We should all work on those things. But I mean, yeah, things are boring and like, that's good. (laughs) Boring is good. I'm 41 years old. I want things to be nice and boring and good. Dude, I'm about to turn 42 in a few days and just keep it Keep it chill. My thing is just like, let me, like, we all want to make more money so we can enjoy the things in life. And like, not from a consumer, not from a consumerism point of view, but from like, money allows you to do things with people that you care about. And that's always awesome. Or money allows you to do the things, the freedom things to say no to shitty gigs and maybe do gigs that don't pay as well, but they're really emotionally, emotionally rewarding. And um, that's kind of, yeah, that's, I mean, I would say if that's my gripe right now, that's that's my only gripe is like fucking, you know, you always want to make more, you know, you make this much, you want to make more, and then you get to that and you want to make more. And it's, I think it's just kind of the human thing, but like, yeah, life is good, man. My life is great. And it sounds like your life is is good too. And like, that's killer. That's, that's what it's all about. Things are going great. And you know what, Chris, I'm happy to have you back here. And since I have you here, let me say happy early 42nd birthday. Cool, man. Thank you. Hopefully, um, yeah, hopefully I make it to 43. <laughs> <laughs> I think you will. I've got a good feeling. I have a feeling I'm going to be here for a very long time and outlast a lot of my friends, which is not necessarily a good thing, you know, because <laughs> yeah. watching people you care about die is, it's a part of life, but it's not an easy thing. But I just have this deep gut feeling I'm going to make it, I'm going to be one of the last ones. And I, I, I don't, like I said, I don't know if that's a good thing or it's a bad thing, but it's just a, a feeling that I have. Well, I hope you are. And listen, we're out of time. We are out of time, but you know that I'm here every week. And I'm back next week with a new episode and a new guest. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next time.